Welcome to the 2023 New Zealand International Science Festival. Although I suspect by now it might be welcome back for many of you. We've been going for a few days now. Um, my name is David McMorran and I'm a member of the festival board. Our vision as a board for the festival is to create an event that inspires and engages the community with science. Science impacts so many aspects of our daily lives and is a source of so many opportunities to improve the way we live. It goes without saying that engaging the community with science and ensuring that there are plenty of avenues for communicating important scientific messages is paramount to our social well-being. That is what we hope to provide in the festival, a fun, accessible and engaging festival all about science. I'd now like to introduce our moderator for the evening. Nikki Bizant is a, a, a multi-award winning New Zealand writer, journalist, speaker and author who has built a reputation for translating complex health and science jargon into easy to understand information for everyone. Her book, This Changes Everything, published in 2022 by Penguin Random House, is the result of two years of research and has topped the bestseller list in New Zealand. Nikki has been involved in New Zealand media for more than 20 years and is a frequent contributor to New Zealand's top print, online and broadcast media. She founded and edited the Cuisine website before becoming founding editor of Healthy Food Guide magazine, taking that title from an independent startup to New Zealand's top-selling food magazine, a position it held for over a decade. She's held positions as editor of Thrive magazine and health editor for Woman magazine and can regularly be heard on Radio New Zealand's The Panel. Noreira, Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenatato Katoa. Kia ora, Dave. Right, well, that was a long intro. I should have, I should have um, cut down that bio a little bit, I think. In any case, yes, I am a journalist and a writer, and I've been doing uh, writing and talking about food in particular for um, a good 20 years, I guess. So this is, we're here to talk about feeding Aotearoa. This is a topic that's very close to my heart. Uh, I, my plan here is to actually let these experts do most of the talking, but I will introduce our, our kōrero uh, for a start, uh, which is to say there's arguably little else more important than ensuring an adequate and healthy food supply for our people. And in our changing world, food systems will need to adapt. So tonight we're going to explore the question, how can Aotearoa move towards a food system that contributes positively to health, well-being, the economy and the environment. I've got a stellar panel here of big brains who are going to help us to dig into this. Um, our panellists are representatives of five of the 11 government-funded national science challenges. The challenges uh, were established in 2014. They are cross-disciplinary, mission-led programmes designed to tackle New Zealand's biggest science-based challenges. As they enter into the final year of their funding, Representatives of the challenges have gathered here in Dunedin to discuss and share some of the impactful research that has come out of these initiatives and how it is being applied across Aotearoa for the benefit of us all. So we're going to discuss the current state of our food systems on land and at sea and talk about the research uh, that's working to drive positive change. 
I'm not a scientist. It has been and is, continues to be one of the joys of my professional life that I get the chance to interview scientists and to pick their big brains and, and understand their research a little bit. So I'm going to do that some more tonight. I'm going to introduce each of our panellists for a start and then we'll hear from each of them individually for a few moments. Uh, and then we will have some, some discussion and then we'll have some time at the end for Q&A. So hold those questions in your mind that you have and we'll have Q&A at the end. Uh, so let me start by introducing my panel that I've got seated here uh, in order of speaking. So we've got first of all beside me Professor Cleona Nimiraku, uh, who's the Deputy Director of the Healthier Lives National Science Challenge which aims to equitably improve the prevention and treatment of cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and obesity. Cleona trained in human nutrition and dietetics and worked as a clinical dietitian before doing a PhD in public health nutrition. She directs a research program in population nutrition with a focus on food environment interventions and policies such as nutrition labelling, food taxes and food reformulation. Cleona is Director of the Dietary Interventions, Evidence and Translation, or DIET for short, research program, and leads a team developing the tools and methods for the next New Zealand Nutrition Survey, which is something that we really, really need. Uh, she's a member of the Trans-Tasman Health Star Rating Advisory Committee and a Food Standards Australia New Zealand Fellow. Next to her, we have Joanne Todd, who's the Director of the High Value Nutrition Science Challenge. The mission of High Value Nutrition is to develop the science, excellence and knowledge the food industry needs to develop and deliver foods that help people stay healthy and well. She joined the challenge from Fonterra, where for over 20 years she held several nutrition and management roles with a focus on combining business development, science, regulatory and marketing activities with an emphasis on Asian export markets. She has led and developed globally-based cross-functional teams to deliver a portfolio of projects and has built consumer insight, clinical research and product development programs that have delivered successful commercial outcomes, increasing revenue for Fonterra's consumer brands business. Next, we have Dr. Jenny Webster-Brown, who's the current director of the Our Land and Water National Science Challenge which supports research to improve our land and water for future generations, very important, and to enhance the value of the agri-food and fibre sector in New Zealand. Her career as a water quality scientist spans nearly 40 years, hard to believe, very beautiful, uh, <laughs> and encompasses research, teaching and consultancy, focusing on the impacts of land use and natural resource exploitation on natural freshwater systems. She worked with DSIR, Chemistry Division, ESR and the University of Auckland before moving to Canterbury in 2010 to take up the position of Professor of Water Resource Management and set up the Waterways Centre for Freshwater Management, a joint University of Canterbury and Lincoln University teaching and research centre. Julie Hall is Director of the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge. The objective of this challenge is to explore how we can best develop our marine economy while protecting the taonga of our marine environment, both an economic and environmental imperative. Julie has extensive experience in biological oceanography, leading large multidisciplinary research projects and in the management of people and projects. Her scientific background is in food web dynamics, 
in both marine and freshwater ecosystems, with a special interest in microbial food web, which I have no idea what that is, so we're going to have to ask you about it. <laughs> and the, as the International Chair of the Integrated Marine Biogeochemistry and Ecosystem Research, IMBA project, she was responsible for leading the development and implementation of the multidisciplinary science plan that addressed the interaction of marine biogeochemistry and ecosystems and their response to global change. And last but not least, we have Dr. Phil Wiles, who has been Te Kōmata or Te Tonga Deep South National Science Challenge Director since February 2022. The mission of this challenge is to enable New Zealanders to adapt, manage risk and thrive in a changing climate. Phil has a background in climate science and policy. He spent 20 years doing oceanographic research in regions from the poles to the equator, including six years working on climate change and environmental issues in the Pacific Islands. For the past 10 years, Phil has worked for central government on how to address climate change, including helping to establish the Climate Change Commission. So you can see what I mean. We've got some pretty serious brain power up here, uh, and we're going to be able to solve all the problems of the world, uh, at least when it comes to food. First of all, um, we'll hear a little bit, a bit more in depth from each of our panelists on their on their challenge and what they the work what they're working on. And we'll start with you, Cleona. Kia ora it's great to be here this evening. I'm excited to be part of, of this discussion. Um, I think um, it's, it's so important for us to draw together all of this kind of expertise to think about how best we can, we can uh, feed Aotearoa in a healthy and sustainable way. Um, our food systems have a major impact on human health, but also on planetary health. It's worth reflecting how much our food system has changed over the last 50 years or so. It's changed enormously in terms of the scale of production and the way that we produce our food and process our food. The impact of that over the past 50 years has been that despite the fact that we're producing enough food to feed the globe, there are still about 800 million people who don't have enough food to eat. Counterbalancing that is that we have an enormous number of people who are overnourished, who are consuming diets that are high in, in calories and ultra-processed foods. And the knock-on effect of that is increased rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease and cancers. All of the, the diseases that our National Science Challenge Healthier Lives is undertaking research to try and address. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the work that we've been doing in that area. Um, and what we've been doing most recently has drawn upon a real landmark report that was produced about four years ago. It's called the Eat Lancet Report. It was um, commissioned by The Lancet, a very highly respected medical journal, that brought together um, 18 authors and commissioners across 16 countries. Um, they had expertise in health, they had expertise in agricultural science, in political science and environmental sustainability. And they were tasked with identifying ways to, um, to produce um, a healthier and more sustainable diet. 
Um, what they did in that report was they identified a healthy reference diet. And that reference diet is very different to the kind of diet that we consume he here in New Zealand. It's got a lot more fruit, fruit and vegetables in it, legumes, nuts, unsaturated oils, and a lot less of red meat, processed meat, um, sugars and refined grains. Um, and a little amount of, of poultry and fish. So very different to the typical Kiwi diet, if you like. So what we've been doing in Healthier Lives is we, we took that reference diet and we created a, we aimed to create a New Zealand version of that reference diet. And we did that using something called optimization modeling. It's mathematical modeling where we put parameters into a model to see what we could do to our current diet to ensure that our population would still meet the nutritional requirements and, and get all of the nutrients that we still need, but not exceed the thresholds for the, the nutrients that cause harm. Um, and we also, at the, at the same time, looked at how we could reduce greenhouse gas emissions the Eat Lancet report looked at, um, it actually um, set targets for what are called planetary boundaries around greenhouse gas emissions, land use, water use, biodiversity loss, and so on. So what we were trying to do with this diet was ensure we could meet our nutritional requirements, but that we could cut our greenhouse gas emissions and do all of that without actually increasing the cost of the diet for the average Kiwi, because we all know that the cost of living is a, it's a major issue as well. Um, so we, we created that diet and we modelled what impact it would have. And we found that it would, it would um, create huge gains in terms of um, healthy life years gained for New Zealanders and, and reductions in preventable mortality and that it could save $20 billion. Um, so it, this is a diet that could actually have economic benefits as well as health benefits, and it would have our greenhouse, our food-related greenhouse gas emissions. So that's just a taste of some of the work that we've been doing in Healthier Lives. Thanks, Fiona. We'll, we'll come back to some of those themes uh, in our general discussion, but we'll hear now from Joanne. Okay, thank you. So I've been with the High Value Nutrition uh, Challenge since 2016, and in that time, our mission has evolved and moved with the changing times. So we were set up to support the export economy through helping support the creation of high-value foods with health claims, in particular for the Chinese market, and because they are our biggest trading partner. We've been working on technology platforms to create new ways of evaluating the health benefits of our food products, and the plan was to conduct clinical trials in New Zealand and offshore to validate those health um, benefits in target populations. You may have heard of the term shifting from volume to value. And from our point of view, supporting the creation of high-value nutritious foods is what we're trying to do, not necessarily value as in cost. Then along came COVID. And question of doing clinical trials offshore was completely off the table. So we've evolved our strategy and... Um, at the same time, we'd been seeing a real shift in our food producers to not necessarily focus on export, but to ensure the products were effective on our own population here at home. So there was also an increased focus from uh, Māori-owned businesses wanting to use modern science methods to validate what they've known for years to be the health benefits of our indigenous or taonga species. 
So our primary focus now is not to necessarily focus on export potential, although it's still important, but to see how we can validate the nutritional benefits of those iconic foods and products that make New Zealand so special. So think green shell mussels, kiwifruit, boysenberries. Did you know that actually only New Zealand and California in the world produce boysenberries? No one else does it. Um, and we're looking at manuka honey. Things, the list goes on and on of what we've been looking at. With some really exciting findings coming through now from clinical work. So green shell mussels have been shown to reduce recovery time after intense exercise in young men. They've also been shown to reduce joint pain among older women. You're probably um, also aware that kiwi fruit can help with constipation and regularity. Did you know that two kiwi fruit before you go to bed can help with sleep quality? Did you know that New Zealand produces deer milk? Yep, you can milk a deer. And what we've found is that it's really rich in protein and can um, maintain muscle mass in older women. Kawakawa, the, the plant, has um, been found to have really interesting chemical composition that indicate anti-inflammatory effects. In Rongoa Māori, kawakawa has been used for you know, a very long time, including as a topical balm to soothe expa boils, grazes, bites, etc. What we found is the most abundant compound that of more than 60 was polyterine, which has numbing effects. And this could explain its use for what the Māori have always been doing for years and years and years for pain relief. We've also found the New Zealand growing environment, which some of our other panellists will talk about, may confer particular nutritional advantages. For example, New Zealand growing cherries have more bioactive compounds than some produced offshore because of our higher UV levels, which is an ironic advantage of climate change, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and a key thing that we're also looking at is how our food landscape can change. We've been looking at New Zealand growing macadamias and peanuts. New Zealand mostly imports most of our peanuts, uh, but growing trials in Northland have shown it is possible here, and again, there could be some advantages nutritionally because of our environment. Pix peanut butter have been selling limited edition New Zealand grown peanut butter. We're hoping in the future that will be more accessible for everyone. We, we can look local. Finally, we're hoping to show that the consumption of a predominantly New Zealand produced diet can be healthful for New Zealanders. It's not dissimilar to the diet that Cleona has talked about. We've got a large clinical study happening in four centres across New Zealand called Hararo Whaipanga, which loosely translates as a nourishing food basket. We've enrolled 200 participants who are at risk of poor metabolic health, so overweight, high pressure, risk of diabetes, and are providing them with 75% of all their dietary needs for 12 weeks. And we're also giving them a lot of behaviour change support. But what makes this study unique is we're also bringing their family on the journey, so all the household gets 75% of their dietary needs provided for that 12-week period, and then we're following them up over a year. It's important because we eat meals as a family and you need that support system in place if you're trying to change your dietary behaviour. So we're doing a range of measurements to evaluate health outcomes and we're doing individual interviews and focus groups to really show that you can consume a New Zealand-produced diet that is good for your health. But what really excites me as well is we have almost 40 food companies behind us providing that food for free. So this is a significant investment for them. So their commitment to supporting the health of New Zealanders and assuring we focus on New Zealand-grown products is outstanding. From my perspective, it's often very 
easy to criticise the food industry, but we've found companies that with really strong values and commitment ensuring that they support health and are willing to invest in science to support this. So with that, I will hand on to our next speaker. Wonderful. Thanks, Joan. Jenny. Thank you, Kira Koto. Land and Water, we're, we're funding research that shows how we can produce food and fibre from our land in a way that protects and restores our freshwater systems as well as meeting wider environmental goals. It sounds easy when you just say it like that, doesn't it? That it's centred on the fact that our food production system is very much out of step with the environmental goals that we have for our country with the nutritional goals that we have for our country, as we've just heard about, but also the food security of Aotearoa. We have a record number of people now who experience food security, and those of us who are secure about our food are paying more and more and more for it. So how have we got into this position where we have this obvious tension between our food production and what's good for our country Largely it's because our food production system is responding dominantly to international market signals, not domestic signals. And if I can just give you one, I think, really nice example of how this has played out. The piece of legislation that we use to protect our natural resources in New Zealand is the Resource Management Act. I think we're all probably familiar with that. And that is um, being quite effective at protecting many resources but has largely failed to protect our freshwater systems. It was supposed to be implemented with a national policy statement for freshwater management. It wasn't. 30 years later we still don't have that policy and that legislation in the ground in any meaningful way. Okay, it's, it's in train but it's not fully implemented. So we've had 30 years of failing to protect our freshwater systems. In that time Dairy exports have increased by a factor of 10. Our eutetic nitrogen fertiliser has increased by seven times. And our greenhouse gases have increased by 25%. Dairy is our most polluting agricultural industry. So we have allowed international markets to create this detrimental change in New Zealand because it's dictated our land use up till now. Now we all agree that this isn't really what we'd want for our country, don't we? This is we nod to show me you're still awake. <laughs> but how do we turn this around without crashing our economy and driving farmers off the land? Because that would be a huge social um, and economic catastrophe, catastrophe for our country and I think we've seen the example of where Sri Lanka tried to go down this route and has experienced that catastrophe. So our land and water funds research to provide evidence and options for making this change to our food production system um, in a way that will allow for a transition. We have to look after our farmers. Many of them are invested in the model that we currently have. They have borrowed money to convert to dairy. Dairy export is the only way that they can pay back the debt that they have. So what about other land uses? We've funded research that looks at where we can grow different crop types and support different stock types in New Zealand. Where would we grow those or support those under a climate-changed 
um, regime. Where are the infrastructure needs and what are those infrastructure needs? Uh, what is the economics of changing from dairy to saccharides in a particular region? We've compiled data and we call the data supermarket to support landowners to look across the options and see what might work for them. Um, we've looked at how farmers can capture more reward for producing things sustainably, um, for growing foods that are consistent with, with cultural ethics, with um, environmental sustainability. How can they get more money back for doing that? How can they increase the premiums that they attract? Um, we've looked at research that provides mechanisms for scaling up land use change. So if you create that land use on a farm, and I, without blowing our own trumpet, I'd say we've been quite effective at actually um, using the research to implement change at a, at a farm level. But how do you scale that up so that you've created a national level change? What are the mechanisms for that? One of the most powerful things we're doing at the moment, I feel, is integrating a lot of the research we've done into creating future scenarios. It's a proof of concept, proof that we can make this change without crashing our economy. And I want to run you through one particular example, and that is working with Healthier Lives and their, their diet that they have proposed, a nutritionist diet for New Zealand. Can we grow that? in New Zealand? Do we have the land that um, we can dedicate to growing that while still meeting the greenhouse gas emission targets and our freshwater system targets that we have? Is it possible? So a modelling exercise to do this, looking at um, both gender, two, two genders and Māori, non-Māori uh, requirements for diet and looking first if we just change the land use on that land, which is currently not very productive, it's called Class 6 and 7 land, which is not much good for anything, um, and the land that is very leaky, okay, leaches nitrogen like crazy into the groundwater and surface water systems. So if we just take that land, we can't quite make it, right? We can go a long way to a nutritious diet, but not quite. But if we convert a lot, um, some of the additional land, the land which is currently in quite good production, we can do it. All it's going to take is around about a, a, a 10 to 15% um, conversion of dairy and up to a 20% conversion of sheep and beef land to forestry and to arable grains and vegetables, which will support a more, more nutritious diet. Now, that might sound like a lot, but actually, if you take it on a whole national scale, and for some regions, yes, it is a big thing for others, but if you take it on a national scale, it's about a 1% cut in our exports, and you balance that against the billion dollars we could be saving down the line on health costs. So it, it is very feasible. Certainly, the evidence is there to make that change. And the legacy that our land and water will leave when we end in the middle of next year will be that evidence base to support the change. But in terms of making that change actually happen, what is the next step? It, it, we are mere scientists and researchers. I hesitate to say we've got big brains in it. Um, you know, it, it needs an higher up the food chain, so to speak, to actually create that change. We need government action and legislation 
to make that change occur. The information's there, but we need to um, develop different priorities for our food production system. We need to focus and, and prioritise the well-being of our whānau people, including our farmers, um, our whenua and wai, our land and water. We need to be prioritising those above the demands of international markets. Thanks, Jenny. Fantastic. Julie? So when we think about food and food systems, we tend to think about land-based. We think about how we produce food on the land. But if we think about the New Zealand realm, it's 4% land and it's 96% sea. So we need to start thinking a little bit differently. Uh, and this happens in other parts of the world. If we look at the protein source for 3.2 billion people, the primary protein source is fish. That fish comes from small-scale fisheries, it comes from small-scale aquaculture. So it means we've got to think a little bit differently going forward in New Zealand, not just with our land base, but with our marine. And that's starting to happen. The agribusiness um, survey for uh, priorities for New Zealand this year, for the first time, in the top 10 priorities, identified sustainable use, maximising the sustainable use of the marine environment for um, production of food. So we're starting to change the thinking at, at some level. But if we think about the nutritional balance of the marine, marine food, if we think about uh, shellfish, we think about salmon, we think about squid, we think about the small pelagic fish, things like mackerel and, and sardines. And we look at those in terms of nutritional density, they are far better than chicken. If we look at the nutritional density of salmon, squid and small pelagic fish, it's better than pork. So you start to think about there is a really good nutritional source there. If we look at the other perspective and we say, well, how about sustainability? And we hear a lot about lack of sustainability in the marine environment. But if we look at the sustainability in terms of CO2 and in terms of nutrient release, we look at the aquaculture of um, seaweed, we look at the aquaculture of mussels and oysters and salmon, the CO2 release, again, is less than chicken. Nitrogen and phosphorus release is less than chicken. Uh, even the taking fishing boats out and, and collecting small pelagic fish, the CO2 footprint is better than chicken. So you start to see some differences. Uh, a study that was done recently, um, wasn't done by us, uh, in the North Atlantic on Pollock, they looked at the lifetime CO2 emissions from growing the fish growing in the ocean to plate. Pollock was a third the level of CO2 per kilogram of protein than chicken. It was a fifth for pork and plant-based protein. And I think that's a really interesting one. And it was a 30th of the footprint for beef. So makes you start thinking about what do we need to do in terms of food and the marine environment. So those are some facts and figures that come. What Sustainable Seas been doing? Well, we haven't done anything about food. I'll be quite upfront about that. But what we have been doing is looking at sustainability. 
at the moment in the marine environment. We manage fisheries here, aquaculture over there, a discharge over there. None of that management is connected. None of those decisions are connected. And we, know, we all know the level of degradation of our marine environment at the moment. We need to change the way we're doing marine management. We need to move to a holistic ecosystem-based approach, which is a holistic approach, looks at all the uses together, looks at the demands for and the values we have for our marine environment. So Sustainable Seas has been doing the underpinning research from the biophysical research right through to policy and legislation. And I think this reflects um, Jenny's comment, the science can do so much, but we need to be impacting those policy decisions. We need to be impacting the legislative decisions to change the way we manage our, our environments to get sustainable food. The other thing we've been doing is looking at business. And we have our marine economy, but what we want to do is move to a blue economy. And that's where we have um, productive, prosperous businesses economically, but they contribute socially, culturally and environmentally in a positive way as well. And that's a transition that we need to take. Now we've got some businesses that are almost transition. We've got some that are on the journey and we've got some that haven't even thought about it. So we need to start moving um, those markers and getting business to think differently about how they operate. Again, the challenge has been doing the underpinning research for that. Um, we've just published last week a set of blue economy principles for New Zealand. So taking what's happening in the blue economy internationally, but what's really unique about New Zealand, it takes that intergenerational approach. It accounts for mana moana, um, the treaty. So if anybody's interested in a little bit more information, there is some material over there if you're interested in picking that up and um, learning a little bit more about what we're doing. Wonderful. Thank you, Julie. Uh, Bill. Kia ora koutou. Thank you, Nikki, for the introduction and previous panellists. It's a, a pretty comprehensive uh, opening to the discussion. Um, I'll look for the questions later on. So I'm going to cover talk about some of the research that is coming out of the Deep South, but also some of the work we've done with Julian Sustainable Seas and Jenny and Outland and Water. So our food production systems, or how we produce food, is going to be affected by climate change in at least two significant ways. One is through the changing climate itself, and there's been some modelling done where we know the temperature is going to increase, we also know there's going to be an increase in extreme events like drought and also um, heavy rainfall events. And that's going to affect the food we produce. So, for example, kiwi fruit requires frost to, to, um, to produce the fruit. Uh, animals, if they're subjected to heat stress, we know uh, dairy animals, we know that their milk production drops. Um, and we've all seen in the last few months what the Hawke's Bay floods have done to some of the orchards and um, food production systems up there. In the marine environment, we, um, we've had a couple of marine heat waves in the last couple of years and we've seen evidence of what that means for aquaculture production up in the Marlborough Sounds. There's some ongoing research into what it also means for tarmac species, for example, kura or, or crayfish, and some ongoing research into what ocean, ocean acidification might mean in terms of how they can form their shells, particularly in the larval stage, and, and grow through to adults. But we also... Um, 
our food production systems are our, will be affected by how we address our emissions. So Jenny's already, and it's already pointed out how emissions intensive our food production systems are. And that in particular, that's for our ruminant animals which produce um, dairy products and meat products. And they make, make up um, about half of our emissions. There are lower emissions alternatives, and there's been some discussion about that already, uh, looking at things like um, horticulture and arable farming. But there's barriers to achieving that, and some of those barriers have already been discussed, access to labour, skilled labour in particular, some of the infrastructure, supply chains, how we process those, those products, um, and, uh, and the skills that are required to do that. Um, Jenny's already pointed out that we're a, an exporting country. Um, of that dairy, we export 95% of our dairy products. We export um, over 90% of our meat products. And if we don't take action to address our emissions, then we're going to lose access to some of those international markets. So we've seen the EU is talking about implementing what's called carbon border adjustments, which is, you know, if, if they see that New Zealand is not taking action to reduce... Um, to reduce our emissions, then essentially we won't get access to those markets and we'll be left with, with um, lower value markets. So what this means is, is um, we need to think a bit more strategically about how we're investing and how we change. And we've already heard about where we put infrastructure, but it's also things like what, what skills are we training our future workforce for? Uh, one thing that neither of the panellists have mentioned, and also I'll, I'll mention it here, is that um, before Jim Mann asks his question, he invited us down here today to be, um, early this afternoon, to be um, locked up in a room and discuss what a, what a food strategy might look like for New Zealand. And so you've heard all these different components about, you know, about nutrition, environmental impacts, economic impacts, and these other ones, cultural impacts and um, social impacts. So some of the things we're thinking about is uh, what, um, what a food strategy might look like, what it, what it might need to cover, um, and interested in getting audience's thoughts on that through the questions. Thanks. Kia ora, Phil. Yeah, we will be talking about the food strategy, don't worry. Um, it's so interesting how many common themes there are between, uh, between all of your work and how many points of connection there are, there are um, with what you're doing. So let's, let's get into, dig into some of the detail or, or some of the, the questions raised by, by all of your kōrero so far. Um, and I think that, Phil, you've kind of kicked it off talking about the recent um, extreme weather events that we've had. Uh, and the pandemic also, I think, highlighted this, this sort of imbalance that we have, where we, we between what we produce and what, what we consume in Aotearoa, we produce a lot of food, as you've all said, uh, and a lot of it, most of it, is exported. Um, and, but we still need to import a lot of food as well, and you know we've had shortages of food. We saw that during the pandemic, which was a weird thing that most of us probably never thought we would have. Um, so I want to know from you, and I know that you all have thoughts on this, is there a future in which we can address that balance and we, are, we can become self-sufficient, or is that unrealistic? Can we actually feed everyone? Jenny, I think you kind of kicked us off on this one. Thank you. I, th I think the answer to the last question, can we feed everybody, is most definitely yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we currently produce food enough to feed 40 million people. We can certainly feed five. Yeah. Um, what we need to actually get a balance between, you know, keeping our farmers economic, producing 
food that is good for New Zealanders. Um, that That is the hardest nut to crack, I think. I, I think this whole business of prioritising domestic needs by whatever mechanism we can find to do that and protecting that and then considering the export market as our second option um, is, is where we need to change uh, the settings of our mind to. And whether, dare I say it, subsidies for farmers to um, produce food for the domestic market, you know, that those are the kind of mechanisms that we need to be looking at, I think. That's quite a mind shift, isn't it, really, for it, our it whole is. national psyche? Yep, and, and you know, just, just the entire engine we have out there um, ensuring international agreements for trade and things, they, they, they all need to, to be re rejigged to create that space to produce good food for New Zealand, I think. Is, there, is this happening elsewhere in the world, that model? Yes, there are countries that subsidise their farmers to produce for their own country. Yes, in Europe especially. Yeah, others can possibly talk more to that. Joanne, I think you had some... Yeah, I think there is uh, definitely a, a case of being self-sufficient, but we've also got to remember that at the moment, $26 billion comes into our economy from exports, and that's a lot of money um, and jobs and um, you know, security for people. So we just need, really need to find that balance of making sure that we do have a, a robust export economy, but it's based on sustainable, climate-friendly, high-value nutrition... Um, that we are um, trying to address that needs of both. And, and I agree with Jenny, you know, that the model, we need to look at things differently um, in terms of government policies around how we support our food producers and make sure food is affordable for our own people. Cool. Does anyone else want to chime yeah. in? I think I'd just add that the same um, issues apply in, in fisheries and aquaculture huge export. There was something on stuff two days ago about 35 billion by 35, 2035. So again, that real export push, um, We've got again, we've got to start thinking about things differently. And I think here, really importantly, is thinking about Maturanga Māori, the Māori worldview and the approach they take. One in terms of um, that utilisation of the marine environment. The first responsibility is to the environment. The second is to how we utilise that env that environment, and and looking really at small scale. Um, I was reading a, a piece of research from the Challenge that's looking at traditional uh, fish capture and aquaculture for Maori communities, and they're looking at how the, how can they go back and reinstate some of those practices um, to feed their whanau. That crosses with our current legislation. It's very difficult for them to do in the current legislation, so we need to be thinking right through to legislation as well to enable some of these changes. Anyone else want to comment before we... No? Oh, Fiona, yeah. Um, I just, I guess to add, it's, it, I think it's really striking how... Um, how siloed we are. I mean, I think, you know, a number of the speakers have already mentioned, you know, that there's a lot of work going on in different areas and, and we're not really talking to each other. And Phil mentioned the need for a national food strategy. I think what we're, what we're lacking in New Zealand is, is kind of a, an oversight where we can join, up, join all the dots that we've heard about today. And 
you know, obviously as a, a nutritionist, you know, I think we've got, a, we've got major issues in terms of our diet-related diseases in New Zealand that are, you know, um, having major impacts on our, on our, on our people, on our, on our whanau, on, on, on our society. Um, and yet our health policies are not talking to our agricultural policies. So we're, you know, we're creating little health policies over here and tweaking over here. And at the same time, you know, there's a lot of work going on in terms of trade and exports and agricultural production and so on. That's not thinking about how can we actually make our food supply healthier and more affordable for everybody in New Zealand as well. So I think, you know, that idea of a national food strategy is, is, or a national food plan is, um, is really the way to go. Cool. I am going to ask you all about that in a minute, but I want to just, um, I want to talk about, let's, let's come back to Matauranga Māori, actually. Um, can, we, um, can we hear how, how this is um, impacting in your various spaces? What can we learn? You've already, um, you've already talked about some of it, but let's, let's hear from all of you. I'm sure that this is something that you've all got perspective on. Thank you. <laughs> yes, uh, since t- 2019, I think, um, Te Ao Māori, a Māori worldview, has been placed at the core of the work that we do in, in our land and water. And that was specifically to enable um, the, the concepts of Māori when it comes to intergenerational thinking, um, reciprocity, giving back to the system that you're taking from and the protection of the entirety of Te Ao, the, the whole environment, including its people, to allow those concepts to permeate into all of our research. So we have a, a, a mix of, of what we might call, though I hate the term, Western science and Mataronga Māori research going on, but also cross-fertilisation across those because the concepts of Te Māori are actually just a different way of looking at the concepts of sustainability and environmental care. So for us, it has been a, a way of bringing Māori into the discussion and supporting them to do their own research. It's been a way of connecting to Māori agribusiness and talking a language that they understand and can start to apply in their own business and for many they have become somewhat disconnected from their culture so it's an opportunity for them to put culture back into their agribusiness. Um, It has been I I think a really really successful and progressive exercise and I have seen so many benefits come through with the type of research outputs that we have through taking that stance of, of really embracing um, te ao Māori and, and to see the relationships that have developed with Māori communities and Māori researchers and to see the growth um, in confidence in um, how they approach what they're doing has has been huge. I have found it an extremely humbling experience to be the director of the challenge through this period of transition. 
It strikes me that uh, what you were describing before about feeding ourselves first or looking after our our people mm-hmm. with, with food is really kaitiakitanga, isn't it? It's, it absolutely is. That guardianship. Yes, yeah. yes that's very central um, to... And it's not an exclusively Māori concept. You know, the, the intergenerational care is something that many... Um, Tauiwi and Pākehā farmers feel very strongly about too, but it is certainly a core concept um, for Māori. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Who else would like to...? Um, <clears throat> I think Jenny's covered a lot of the concepts really well. And the, the, yeah. One of the key things she's talked about is reciprocity and making sure we're giving back, and it's, you know, it's called many things in different cultures. Re- regenerative agriculture is one of the names of some people give it. But... Um, in a more general sense, one of the things National Science Challenges were set up to do was do things differently. And each of the National Science Challenges has taken a slightly different approach to how they've, um, how they've funded Mataranga research. And so there's some work we're, going, we're doing across the challenges looking at how different challenges have done it. and Not whether one is better or worse, but what that, what that has meant in terms of how Mataranga research has, has um, advanced. And I think each of the challenges has done a really good job um, in advancing. That's not something that Existing science system funds very well. Um, I think the only other thing I'd point out is that a, a mātauranga approach is generally much more holistic than a Western reductionist science approach. And when Jenny was talking earlier about this, you know, um, export-driven mind pro- mindset that we've got, which you know, my head goes back to 1882 when we had the first freezer ship leave HMS Dunedin from Port Chalmers, and is, is really you know that's driven a lot of what we do. That is quite a, you know, focused on one outcome, and I think a Mataranga approach is a much more holistic, broader, um, broader approach, which considers many other outcomes at the same time. One thing just to add, and, and like Land and Water, Sustainable Seas has had that central um, Maori worldview perspective, and I think one of the things we've been able to do is bring Mataranga and science together. But what's also been critical is to give Maori the space to do their own research. And, and not always be trying to integrate it, to give them the space to do do what they need to do, and then bring it together at some stage. Um, and and we've an example would be a project where the Iwi Collective Partnership, which is a group of 18 Iwi, um, who have brought their fishing quota together, and they're looking at how they can add value to their product. And and this is for the export market. So they're going back. Um, to their kamatua and looking at the tikanga of fishing and how they can bring that through into their current fishing practices um, to add value to brand um, for, for their fish. So it, it, the, the mataranga has a, a, a huge um, influence. Um, we've also funded a project to actually um, facilitate uh, iwi reclaiming their maramataka so their traditional knowledge, their lunar calendar, and how, how that f- links to uh, fishing and management of the marine environment. So enabling to go back and, and reclaim that um, because it's quickly being lost in terms of people who have that knowledge um, are, are starting to not be with us anymore. Lovely. Cleona? Um, well, the objective and um, our key objective in healthier lives is to equitably reduce the rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancers. And 
we're probably all aware that the burden of those diseases is distributed very inequitably in Aotearoa with, with Māori and Pacifica bearing a really disproportionate burden of those diseases. So um, in, in all of the work that we're doing in Healthier Lives, um, we, we partner with, with Māori. We have many Māori lead investigators on, on all of the projects. Um, in terms of um, the, the kind of work we've been doing around healthy and sustainable diets, um, we, um, the, the modelling that we do um, always takes into account what impact any kind of intervention or, or um, action might have for Māori um, as, as well as non-Māori. Um, we in the healthy and sustainable diet that we've created or optimised for New Zealand, um, that was done in partnership with Māori because obviously um, it's one thing to kind of put a diet into a mathematical model. You get some very strange things coming out of it, you know, where you're supposed to eat two kilos of carrots a day or so, you know. Um, but we've been working to ensure that the diets are culturally appropriate and a lot of that work has been with, with Māori to ensure that the kinds of diets that we're creating um, would be acceptable for, for um, Māori, non-Māori um, New Zealanders as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's one example of, of how we do it in healthier lives. Wonderful. Okay, talking about uh, inequity, which you raised there, I, I want to talk about the cost of food because this is something that's very topical and every time you turn the news on, there's something around the cost of living and the cost of food in particular. So can we, um, can we explore some of the innovations that are happening in your, in your various areas of expertise um, that can help us here and in the future as well because this is only going to keep on happening, I think. Who'd like to kick that one off? Just a small problem to solve. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a real issue, and I think Jenny kind of got to the nub of it earlier on when she talks about we, we're an exporting nation, and that means that the prices we pay domestically are often set by an international market. And one thing that I haven't quite got my head around is why we pay more for a leg of lamb here than we do in a supermarket in London, which is, seems quite Yeah, bizarre. you hear that all the time, don't you? Yeah, what, you do. What, does anyone have any insight on well, this? I've asked a few people... I'm going to leave it to you. <laughs> Joanne might. Yeah. I mean, I can only really talk from a, a dairy perspective because yeah. that's my, my background. Well, but, cheese um, is one of those things, isn't it, that it comes is. up? Che you know, why is a block of cheese more expensive here than it is in Australia yeah. or whatever? Yeah. I mean, the problem is we can't portion off our domestic market and so all of the farmers have to get paid the same no matter whether they're supplying domestic or international. And so... It's, it's very difficult. We do have to set that price. So otherwise, we'd say to some farmers, you get paid less for your milk because New Zealanders are consuming it, whereas Joe Bloggs down the road gets paid more because they're drinking it in the UK and they, they really value it. So that's that kind of equitable funding in New Zealand. But, I mean, it all comes down to the value of our dollar as well. You know, um, you, Things do cost more in New Zealand generally because we're isolated and costs more to get fuel here to run the dairy factories um, and, and these kind of things. It's in its scale, consumer demand, you know, as well. We're a small population, realistically, um, to, to fund these kind of things. There's a whole bunch of factors which I, I'm not justifying by any means, um, but, yeah, it's really complex. Yeah. Just a little bit more on that, on that price of food. Um, there's a, a very, I'm sure most people are aware, a very live discussion around for example, pricing of agricultural emissions. 
And one of the arguments against not doing it is that it's going to increase food costs domestically. But one of the things to bear in mind is that if we don't do that and don't start addressing our emissions, then in the long run our food will become a lot more expensive. So sometimes we need to take actions and it might increase cost in the short term, but will help us in the long term. Which yeah. is not so appealing when we're doing our shopping. No. What we're trying to do through the, the dietary studies that we're doing is it's education as well, in that you know, shop seasonally. Um, it's a luxury to have watermelon in the middle of winter. You don't need watermelon in the middle of winter. And frozen vegetables are perfectly fine if things aren't available. And so a lot of it is trying to change people's behaviour and, and those kind of things as well to just really get a good understanding of how to shop sensibly. Um, the optimisation work that we did has shown that you can actually meet your nutritional needs and reduce greenhouse gas emissions without really... Um, markedly increasing the costs of, of diets and, and the reason for that is because of course some of the changes are around reducing things like red and processed meats and consuming more fruits and vegetables and legumes and so on um, so there's um, you know and that can be actually quite a cost effective way of, of shopping and eating and um, there was a really interesting piece of work done by Andrew Reynolds, who I see is here tonight, where Andrew um, did some work looking at various strategies to reduce our consumption of red and processed meats and, and how we might do that and, and looked at, you know, if we adopted different, different kinds of dietary recommendations versus um, consuming those kind of quite highly processed plant-based foods that we see increasingly appearing in our supermarkets um, meat, cultured meat that's grown in, lab, in labs and so on. And for most of those scenarios that Andrew looked at, um, the costs were about the same or even slightly lower. Um, so I think that does give us cause for hope that um, it doesn't a healthy, sustainable diet doesn't necessarily have to be markedly more expensive than what we're purchasing at the moment. just requires a lot of change in terms of, of how we eat. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that then, because that is the elephant, or it is, might be the cow, in the room. Uh, do we actually need to radically change how we are eating in order to have a, a diet that is going to be sustainable and healthy in the, in the long term, truly? Yeah, I think all of the evidence is that we absolutely have to. And probably the biggest change for, for all of us will be around reducing meat consumption because that's, you know, the global reference diet that the Lancet Commission produced, the, the New Zealand version of that. It shows radical reductions in terms of our consumption of red and processed meats if we are to reduce our emissions whilst also um, ma maintaining our nutrition. So I guess the, the bigger question is, I mean, so we know what we need to do. The bigger question is probably how do we do it or how do we bring, how do we bring everybody on this journey where we do need to reduce our meat consumption and we do need to be eating more fruit and vegetables, nuts, legumes, seeds, things that perhaps are not typically consumed in a New Zealand diet. And, and that's where I think we have to get much more into thinking about policy levers and, and various kinds of policies that can, that can kind of encourage changes in, in consumption and consumer demand. Yeah. You look like you're ready to say something on that, Jenny. I, I had a random thought, yes. Um, 
I think it's important to recognise that, you know, we don't all eat the same diet. We're, we're talking on a national average here, but there are many choices and many different cultures of diet in New Zealand, and some are very, very poor nutritionally, and some, of course, are, are exactly what we need to eat nutritionally. So the question is how we shift those people who are eating a poor diet find out why they're eating a poor diet. Is it because it's simply cheaper? Is it because they don't know what a healthy diet would look like? You know, it's not shifting everyone. It's shifting those that are definitely committed to an unhealthy diet at the moment. No answers, just a comment. Yeah, right, gotcha. <laughs> Phil. Um, that, your question there is really interesting. Again, there's a couple of things about how we define things. So if... If all of New Zealand moved to being vegetarians, as, I, as we've said before, we export 95% of our meat. So if New Zealand became fully vegetarian, would we stop producing um, meat? And, and at the moment, under current statistics, no, we will carry on producing that. And so as a country, yeah. the way we measure our emissions is what's called through production emissions. And so we'd still have an emissions profile which looks very similar to what it is today. If you look at it through what's called in a consumption type approach, then yes, it would be very different. And um, but and so it's yeah, it's, that's of course assuming that we do keep producing. And whether if New Zealand was fully vegetarian, whether there'd be a social license for New Zealand to grow um, grow meat and export. Oh well, yeah, and dairy for that matter. And, and dairy, yes, yeah, exactly. Which is a Vegan, poor yes, solution, yeah. I think. I I'd just add, we really need to be thinking about blue food. Blue and what, food. What, what what can we do there? Um, and you've got wild caught, you've got issues, um, but you've got aquaculture. You've got seaweed. You put nothing in. You put seaweed in there, they suck up excess nutrients. You've got food. Same with mussels, same with oysters. You know, that we've got some really sustainable sources of food um, in the marine environment, which are, are, are really nutritionally good as well. Yeah. We really need to be thinking more about it. Just um, off the top of my head, what, what's going on with the scallops? Do you... It's not good. Yeah, um, I get that. Can you, can you fill us in? Uh, it, it's, it's, something, and it's something we've done quite a bit of research on in the challenge. It's multiple stresses. It's not one thing. It's, it's a whole lot of things coming together, and a lot of it's land-based sources, so sediments, so forestry, agriculture, um, or adding sediments in that are, uh, are not not great for scallops. They, they filter their food. So if you've got lots of sediment, they don't feed well. Um, but it's also fishing practice. And, and that includes both commercial and recreational fishes. So there's a whole lot of things coming together there that has uh, decimated the, the scallop populations. Is it recoverable? Asking for a friend. Uh, <laughs> Yes, but it, it, it's not only... You've got to change your land practices and what's coming off the land into the marine environment as well as your fishing practices and what's happening in the marine environment. So it's really it's about that mountains-to-sea management and, and how you link those things up. And you'll have seen tonight the challenges. Um, one's land, one's, one's marine. Um, you know, and I was told by my board, you stay wet and salty was reasons for that, but it means we don't get that connection. Right. And we don't get that connection in a lot of places in terms of that mountain to sea management. 
Okay, well, that leads us quite nicely. What you're talking there about is about a joined-up thinking approach, uh, which leads us to the uh, national food strategy, potentially, which I know that representatives of all of your challenges have been talking about today, getting together and talking about, and very much agreeing, um, strongly agreeing, I think I can say, that, that this is something that we need to, that we need to look at developing. So let's um, talk a bit more about that. First of all, what, what, would a, what is a food strategy? Who wants to kind of just kick us off with a, with a, what do we mean by that? My interpretation, sorry, my interpretation of a food strategy would be that high-level guidance that governments can use to realign our, our food production system so that it is consistent with our environmental and nutritional goals that is how I would see a food strategy panning out in New Zealand. Which is quite a massive undertaking, isn't it, really? Yes, but I think we can look to overseas examples of right. where this has been done. Yep. Successful examples and less successful examples. I think there's learnings that we can get from that. Yeah, okay, so tell me, I want to know from each of you what you would, what you would want to see in a national food strategy. Phil? No, I'm going to let someone else go far. <laughs> yes. um, you all more just, just responding to you. It's a massive thing. Yes, yes, and no. I mean, yeah. we've got policies which we're developing around things like climate change, for example, and that they're well underway. But what they don't consider is nutrition, for example. And like Julie's, Julie's point was a classic one, where she talks about um, you know forestry and, and um, erosion affecting what happens to our shellfish beds. So we've got climate policy in place at the moment, which is encouraging afforestation, you know, to sequester carbon. But if those, when those trees are harvested, then that's when you get the sediment coming down. There's a window of, you know, four or five years after harvest where you get the sediment coming down and affecting, um, affecting shellfish beds. So going to your next question, what would we expect to see in a, in a food strategy? To me, it's not going to answer everything. A, a strategy is kind of a high level, this is what we're aiming on, aiming for. And it's, to me, a strategy is also pointing out what we're prioritising and what we're not prioritising. And so it's point, uh, there, we had, uh, and I don't know what the answer is yet, and I think that's where you need to have a much broader discussion about what matters to people, and informed by the science, about what do we really care about as a country, uh, you know, nutrition-wise, environmental-wise, water quality-wise, um, greenhouse gas emissions, and, and climate um, resilience. Mm. I mean, for me... It is about that sustainability and looking at that mountains to sea management of the marine environment in relation to food. So it, it crosses a huge amount of our legislation uh, in terms of you know, greenhouse gases, resource management, um, and on it goes, um, the Fisheries Act. Um, it needs to sit and inform those and it needs to inform that environmental management and that's going to be challenging to do if we look at the RMA and the reforms of the RMA that are going on at the moment. That, that is really difficult when you just think about the marine or the environment as a whole um, and actually getting marine thinking into that but then you put food over the top of it. It's going to be complex but we need to, we need to grasp the nettle and do it. Who drives it? Where does it come from? Oh. Do we need, <laughs> I get, people say this, do we need a Ministry of Food? I think we do need some change at government level to create uh, an, a, an agency to drive this. 
But I think the lesson that we can learn from some of the overseas strategies is that we need to take everyone with us. And if there was one thing that I would seek a food strategy to have, it would be the input of all the relevant sectors um, so that everybody's had a chance to see how they contribute, what the implications of them not adhering to the strategy are, and some influence over its final form. I think that that's where the Canadian strategy has been very successful, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, from our challenges perspective, what we would like to see in there, it would be rewards for food producers to do things the right way, so that they're, they're not actually paying to adhere to a food strategy, but benefiting from it. Joanne? Yeah, my perspective on a food strategy is it's got to be pan-government um, and it needs to inform all our legislation. So food underpins so much of what we do, our health, our economy, our environment. When they're setting legislation, they need to have, be looking at it overall. What are we trying to do as New Zealand, as a food producer, as you know, guardians of our population and, and those kind of things as well? I think at the moment we have a lot of cherry-picking you know, there's things, great things happening. Uh, we've got school lunches going in, and that's a great initiative. Who's looking at why our elderly are hungry? And there needs to be a, a much wider perspective and a really consolidated view of, you know, if we're going to have a really good, healthy population and environment, what does the food space need to look like? And that is across every aspect. You see, we've come from very different backgrounds, but we're all working towards the same thing, really. I think that's really important for our country. Um, and from my perspective, I'd really like to see health front and centre in there. I think often when we have conversations in New Zealand about food, it is about it being a product and an export and a major source of revenue for our country. Um, I'd really like the, a, a national food strategy to recognise that food is a basic human right and we have too many people who are not, um, ha who don't have enough nutritious food. So I would really like to see that front and centre. I think what that would result in, and I, I totally agree, it's a high level strategy out of which all other kinds of legislation and policy needs to come. But I think what that would bring is the need to have some pretty uncomfortable conversations, which I think is what we have not really been having um, very openly in New Zealand up until now. I mean, it's so refreshing to be sitting here with all of these amazing experts and, and as you say, hearing, you know, how much commonality there is. Um, but I think it, it will necessitate some uncomfortable conversations around how we move forward, um, you know, for, yeah, to, to, to nourish our population and, but also our, our environment. Just what do you mean by an uncomfortable conversation? Do you, can you think of an example? Yeah, um, I can. I think about our dietary guidelines, for example. Our dietary guidelines are um, the foundation document for all kinds of food and nutrition-related policy in New Zealand. Um, in most countries, and, and you know, I'm not saying New Zealand specifically, but there's a huge reluctance to go anywhere near making a recommendation around reducing meat consumption. 
Um, there's massive lobbying from industry. Um, you know, and, and we've heard here tonight why that is, because, you know, um, the food industry is a, it's a, um, a huge source of, of jobs and, and wealth in, in New Zealand. But that kind of lobbying means that um, often governments will back off and they, they just won't have that, they're not willing to go there. And yet I think we do have to have some uncomfortable conversations about how are we going to reach our emissions target and how are we going to reduce our appalling rates of diet-related disease without doing something that we're being told over and over again that we need to do for our health and the health of our planet. Okay, right. We've got, I, I want to hand over to questions from the floor in a moment, but I want to ask you one final question, all of you. I want to give you the power. You've got the power, king for a day. Um, and we are in an election year, so this is not necessarily a theoretical question. If, uh, policies. If you had the ability, I mean, aside from a national food strategy, if you had the ability to implement one policy in the service of feeding Aotearoa and achieving what we're talking about tonight, what would it be? Go. <laughs> no, you go first, you go first. Again, I, I come back to that sustainability. Um, and I guess that's my background. But it, we have to produce food sustainably because otherwise we won't be producing food. And, and so that's an absolute critical step. And what is the policy? Sorry? What is the policy? Just a... The, the policy is, is sustainability. Um, and if we go to our Resource Management Act, our Fisheries Act, um, the other acts involved um, in, in terms of making sure we are managing our environment sustainably. Fabulous. So to be fair, Nikki, you gave us advance warning of this and I've thought about it and I haven't come up with an answer, to be honest. I was, I was hoping it would come to me today. Um, and during the discussions this afternoon, and I, I don't—I really don't know what it is because I don't think it's any one policy. I no, think it's a—I think it's a mix of, and I think, um, and one thing, one point that's come up during this conversation is the need for more policy. And I don't think there is a need for more policy. Maybe there's some new policies, but there's a lot of existing policies that I think could be tailored and just nudged in a more appropriate direction. So, if I was going to answer, I think I would come back to the thing we've discussed today, which is some overarching objective or strategy which is a guiding light or you know not a guiding light a, a set of what we're wanting to achieve that other policies can be used to be consistent towards right <laughs> that's all right we'll let you off Jenny um, yes I'm, I'm sorry but 40 years as a water quality scientist is a hard habit to break <laughs> The policy that I would like to see implemented is the National Policy Statement for Freshwater Management to be... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to be implemented in its fully... And, and made, you know, fully fully actionable. Because I think that, that will drive a lot of the changes that we need to see. It will only be the first step, but it will be the first step in the right direction. So, you know, we've waited 30 years. I really don't want to wait any longer... I want to see it hit the ground. Is anyone actually on this politically? Yes. Um, it's just the delays that are, you know, we, we, we're constantly improving the policy itself. Every few years it's reviewed and more things are put in. 
which is great. But now we are held back as regional councils develop their plans and policies as to how they will implement it, and that's a, a you know, huge delay. And so we're still looking at another, I think it's two years before we'll actually see it hitting the ground. That's, a, that's, a, that's decades to wait for this to happen. And the marine environment is further behind again. We're not even at the stage that freshwater is at in terms of management. Any politicians here tonight? <laughs> Shame. I'm no policy expert, but um, my facetious answer would be to make a policy that government departments talk to each other. Um, <laughs> because there is a lot of work going on in this space, very disconnected. Yeah. Um, and, and it shouldn't be that hard. But I think, as Jenny kind of said, you know, change is going to take decades um, to, to really revitalise our food system where we're talking decades and decades. I mean, we were talking this afternoon, I think it was three years, the egg industry was, you know, new legislation, free range, and we had the great egg shortage of 2023 because no one was prepared for it. Um, and these things are just going to take a lot of time and we've got to just... Bite the bullet and get on with it. Fabulous. Cleona. And my wish, not exactly a policy, but absolutely fundamental to actually creating good food and nutrition policy, is that we desperately need a nutrition survey in New Zealand. Yes. Our last adult nutrition survey, where we have good data about what New Zealanders were eating, was back in 2008, 2009. And our last survey of children was 2002. That's two decades ago. We desperately need good information about what New Zealanders are eating in order to form good policy and in order to monitor what impact any policies we implement are actually having in terms of our food and our health. So slightly left field, but I think pretty important in terms of policy making. Brilliant. Very important. Okay. Without further ado, who has got questions for our... I've learned a lot, and I'm sure you all have too. Um, I'm sure that there are burning questions out there, so speak up now. Ooh, yes, lots. What about people growing their own food? Who'd like to talk about that? What in specifically about people growing their own food are you thinking in terms of food security. Right. It can only help, can't it? I mean, the, I think there's lots of initiatives that are sort of at ground level um, and, and just based on a few very passionate people to help people grow their own food. But if, if what you're looking for is kind of a, a more nationally coordinated approach, I, I, I think you're on the right track. Yeah, it would certainly help. Um, it's just interesting to put that, I, I agree, it would help. Uh, also interesting to put in the context of one of the things we're trying to do as a country is um, in, increase density of housing. Um, and so thinking about how people can grow food in that kind of environment, whether it's rooftops or allotments or whatever it might be. But from an emissions perspective, we're far too sprawled out. and we Transport emissions are, are too high because of that, and we do need to intensify. So yes, a good thing, and it'll be interesting to think about how we do in that context. 
Um, apart from like policies and government intervention, what are other ways that we could encourage like industry to care about our communities and the environment, like from an export side? Who would like to tackle that? Joanne? <laughs> Seems like it might be your question. I think our industries do care. Um, yeah. it's, there is a social responsibility movement, you know, um, there's milk in schools, there's sanitary and wheat bricks for breakfast, there's, there's a lot of really good initiatives going on, but it. I think it does require a lot more, um, I don't want to use the word subsidy, but more support for them to do it, you know, 80% of our businesses would be classed as small, and often they are a husband and wife or one person on their own. And so it's very hard for them to give stuff away or, you know, spend a lot of time. And so there needs to be more, um, I guess, political and more corporate support to, to take these people under their wings so that they can do more. And just to add, I think what's needed um, to, to get industry thinking or acting more in this space is more government leadership because... It's not necessarily industry's responsibility um, to do some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of, you know, for example, nutrition and, and healthy eating. But we do need government leadership. And, and industry will, will generally, if there is government leadership, they'll absolutely come to the table and do what they can. Um, but if there isn't that government leadership, then we're relying on them, um, you know, to, to take actions that, you know, could impact on their profits and, and, and so on. So, yeah, I think, I think we need industry action but government leadership. Thank you for really stimulating ideas. Um, in terms of the marine system, we're, we are. We're miles behind. We've got no holistic management. We've got no ecosystem-based management. We've got huge problems in terms of quota management. How do we have a blue economy that's not based on industrial scale um, that doesn't increase and doesn't use a whole lot of antibiotics and everything else that has to go into looking after salmon farms and after wild fisheries and aquaculture? How do we develop a seaweed um, ecosystem when the seaweed is the foundation for the marine um, biology and we talk about harvesting it? And every time we talk about harvesting a new species, we see really unacceptable impacts. And I just don't think we have the infrastructure, we don't have the political will, we don't have the um, industrial will to really change how we might look at a blue economy. And it fills me with great fear that we start thinking about developing it when we don't have the foundations anywhere near in place. I think... I'll take the example of seaweed. Um, we are starting to put the foundations in place and there's a framework for development of the seaweed industry sitting over there if you want to have a look. Um, and that really, we looked at what are the key things that we need to do to get a seaweed industry going in New Zealand. So looked at the regulations, looked at the, the leadership and looked at the knowledge base that was still needed. And I'm pleased to say that MPI have actually picked up that up and are starting to address some of the regulatory barriers for, for seaweed aquaculture. So things are happening. Um, I think some of the answer is, is going to small scale, and I think what we're going to see in New Zealand, and we're starting to see, is Maori, small Māori businesses uh, and hapū and iwi groups doing things their way. 
and, and looking at small scale, we'll, we'll feed locally. We'll set up, um, we have a project uh, in Tauranga working with Iwi there, looking at the potential for very small scale aquaculture flounder um, and using races, just water races um, in Tauranga Harbour. And that they're not looking at it as a commercial entity, they're looking at it as how do we feed our families. So I think that there are some initiatives starting to come, um, but it's going to take time. Brilliant. Well, we've got time for, like, maybe two more questions. Um, kia ora. Thank you all for being here um, and sharing your knowledge with us. And it's great to hear all the positive things that are happening in these spaces. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned, Fiona. And, uh, health and that, that should be at the forefront of any food strategy um, and of course the health of our environment and whenua our planet but also our health of our whanau um, but something that hasn't been mentioned is around hiningaro uh, and the relationship between food and mental health um, and I just want to highlight you know during the pandemic uh, there was a huge strain on our mental health system and the primary factor around that, which many studies showed, was around food insecurity. And with the growing issues around climate change, there is going to be increase in food insecurity in globally and in New Zealand. Um, and I was just wondering around the challenges or if there was to be a food strategy or if any of your um, work you've been doing, if mental health and its relationship with food has come up around how we're going to address the challenges of food insecurity and the mental health burden that we'll have on our system and our health services. Um, and not just those who are affected by struggling to feed themselves, but also people in our agricultural sectors who are having to adjust to these huge changes and the effects that has on them and their own um, mental wellbeing, if anyone has any thoughts on that. Wow, there's a lot there. Who would like to... Take a run at that. Good question, by the way. You guys are good at asking questions and not just making comments and statements, which is quite often what If happens. I can pick up on the, the point that you raised at the end, and that is the, the mental well-being of our food producers themselves, that has also taken a huge hit over recent years. And you can see why the finger of blame has been pointed very squarely at particularly our dairy farmers and others. And that is, yeah, that is a consideration for the challenge. And that is why we are, um, you know, trying to diffuse the situation where they're blamed for everything, but provide them with incentives to change that will enable them to feel good about what they do again, um, rather than to be the bad guys in the equation all the time. It is certainly a consideration, yes. Uh, just to say thank you, I think that's a, a really great point to raise. Um, food insecurity is a major issue um, in New Zealand and obviously it does have um, impacts in terms of mental health as well as physical health um, and it's something that absolutely has to be at the forefront um, as, we, as we move forward with the strategy. So thank you for raising it. Right, one more. Over the back. There's been a lot of talk about um, our export market and it might be a, um, an elephant or cow in the room, but what about our import of fertiliser? It's a full question, how isn't it? Might, how it <laughs> Jenny. Um, yes, well, I, I did mention that the increase in dairy has resulted, you know, has been... Um, 
accompanied by that huge increase in our uh, use of synthetic nitrogen fertilisers, and that is um, obviously an imported fertiliser along with the superphosphate. Um, how it might play out, I think we're seeing a lot of initiatives at the moment, such as the regenerative agriculture initiative and um, use of plants that sequester nitrogen. Uh, our land and water has, has funded some research um, undertaken often by farmers themselves to look at whether you can sequester enough nitrogen to support the following year's you know, cropping. Um, I think there's a lot of initiatives underway. Everybody recognises that the synthetic use of fertilisers has a finite lifetime. It, it, it is going to run out. It is going to be um, replaced by other ways of doing things. Um, yeah, it's a really good point. I think the only other thing I would add is that I think it's a common understanding at the moment we're using too much nitrogen, and even the, even the peak dairy bodies are saying, dairy and Z are saying we can we can reduce the amount of nitrogen we use. So we can be a lot more efficient with it. At the moment, it's cheap, too cheap probably, and farmers are just putting more on, you know, and, and probably over-applying because it's, it's more coming off, and that has impacts on waterways and greenhouse gas emissions. So, yeah. And the marine. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I think we need to be innovative. And there, um, there's a company called Agracy, uh, which operates out of Pyra. And they pay iwi around the east coast to collect seaweed for them. They bring it in and they turn it into fertiliser. And other products as well. It's being innovative about the fertilisers we use and where we get them from. And I would just mention that they're actually one of the companies that we're looking at how we scale that up. So they're the subject of a case study um, through our land and water to take that model that they have very successfully run and scale that up to service some of our fertiliser needs. Fab. Well, uh, this has been extremely interesting and very stimulating, I think, for all of us. Please um, join me in thanking our wonderful panel. And I think if anyone has any more questions, they might all be hanging around for a little bit after this, so you can bail them up um, over a drink. And I'm going to hand back to Dave. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I think sometimes it's easy to um, think that science can be very esoteric and very much out there and not that relevant to us in our normal lives. And I think what we've seen tonight is that sometimes that's really not the case as well. Um, so on behalf of the board, thank you all very much for the mahi that you're doing and for taking the time to come and join with us tonight and tell us what you've been up to. So thank you again.